0: and if you have a copy of the word of god we're going to be in first john first john <clears throat> um by way of review kids this will help us adults this will help us remember kids this will help you guys know where we're at kids you think we should test your parents to see how well they've been listening all right, let's see if they can fill in these answers here, all right? Here we go. You guys, you, I think you guys have a, a, an outline sheet in your little bags that came in this morning that has a, an outline where we're going, all right? So um, who's the author of the book of First John? Do we have that on the slide there? The author of First John? Is the answer filled in already? Oh, the answer's already filled in. All right, who's the author of First John? John, John the Apostle, parents, you guys are cheaters because you guys saw the answer up there. Uh, John the Apostle, John, the last living disciple of Jesus, is the author of this letter. And he's writing to who? Don't put the answer up there yet, you uh, Be- uh, or Benjamin. Uh, so who is John writing to, parents? All right. <laughs> you guys are striking out. Let's put up the answer there. The, the recipients, he's writing to the church in the city of Ephesus, all right? And so the church in Ephesus is the recipient of this letter, Now, if you remember from your Bibles, Acts chapter 19, Paul's on his third missionary journey. He goes to the city of Ephesus, spends three years there. The church is birthed and established. It becomes a launching point for ministry into Asia and into uh, modern-day Turkey, that region of the world then. It was pastored. That church in Ephesus was pastored, would be pastored later on by Timothy. Most recently, John served as the pastor of this church, and so here's a letter from a pastor to his church. And what was the problem, parents, that John was addressing in this letter? What's that? Gnosticism. There we go. Yeah, we got one person. Uh, well, a couple other mumbling, but the right answers over here, right? And so, Gnosticism, kids, the big word. Gnosticism was a false religion. It was a heretical uh, belief. It was a false teaching. Some of the tenets of the teaching of Gnosticism were this: that Jesus Christ was not the Son of God. Instead, He was the natural-born Son of Mary and Joseph. So in a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating Christmas. We're going to be talking about the the birth of Jesus and how He was born of the Virgin Mary. Well, the Gnostics, they denied that. They said that Jesus was born naturally, man and wife, husband and wife, uh, Mary and Joseph. That Jesus did not become the Son of God until He was baptized. That's when the Spirit of God descended upon Him. And that when Jesus died, he didn't die as the Son of God. Instead, he died as a natural man because the Spirit of God left him just prior to the crucifixion. And so it was a false teaching that was unsettling the early church. And John was writing to combat that issue. All right. And so the problem was Gnosticism. The message was that of, you can put it up there, uh, was that of assurance. John was writing as a pastor to his church to give them the assurance, the assurance of what? That if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. Like how can anyone know that they're going to heaven? John is writing about that. What is the assurance that what we have believed is true? How do we know that we have eternal life? John is writing about that in this letter. And so so far as we've been going through the book, we've been looking at the signs of life. Right now it's fall. The leaves are starting to change. Soon they're going to be falling to the ground. There'll be winter. Come springtime, there'll be signs of life. The grass will green. The weeds will sprout up. We don't want that sign of life, right? Uh, the grass will green. The, the flowers will begin to bloom. The trees will bud. Soon they'll be full of leaves. The signs of life. Well, when we get to the verses that we're looking at today, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, John swishes from the signs of life to the stages of life. And just like there are stages to human life, infancy, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, John identifies three distinguishable stages in the spiritual life. And he writes about that in verses 12 through 14. Let me just, before we read this text, let me just uh, give to you a little bit of the structure so it can help us understand it. John is going to write, he's going to say three times in verses 12 and 13, and then three more times in verse 14, I am writing, or I have written, and he will identify three distinct age groups. He's going to talk to children, then adults, then young men. And he'll give to us the reason why he's writing. He'll use the word because. And so this just helps us begin to understand what is happening here. What John is doing in this passage is he's addressing the different stages in the Christian life those who are children, those who are youth, those who are fathers. And in these verses, he gives to each generation, we might say, assurance that is designed to help them stay grounded and anchored in Christ. And so with this in mind, let's read the Word of God for today, and then we'll consider in detail what the text is saying to us this morning. 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 12 to 14, we read these words. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, or I have written to you, dear children, because you know the Father, I write, have written to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, have written, young men, because you are strong. The word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Well, let's consider here this morning what the word of God is saying to us. He said, What are the three stages of the Christian life? And what is John addressing? John begins, first of all, by addressing the status of spiritual children. He begins by addressing the status of spiritual children. John begins in verse 12, and then he repeats it again in verse 14, by addressing children. He writes, my dear children. These are those spiritual children. There was a sense in John's life that All of the people that he was writing to were children. I guess when you're 80 or 90 years old, everyone is like a child to you. I mean, I just, I think of my own kids, right? This week, I just, sitting on the couch and I said, man, I miss the kids, right? Our kids are 27 and 30, right? But they're still kids, right? The children are always going to be children to the parents. Maybe, I hope so. Maybe I'm just dysfunctional. I don't know, but... um, so he's writing to the status of the children. Now, in verse 12, when John says, I'm writing to you, dear children, the word that he uses for children there is the word that means to bear or to give birth. The emphasis here is on the relationship of the child with his father. This is significant. Christians have a new relationship with God in which he becomes our father. But think about what John had written in his gospel. John chapter 1 verse 12, one of my favorite verses, where John writes, he says, But as many as have received him, even to those who have believed on his name, he gave them the right to be called the what? Children of God. That is who we are in Christ. We are the the children of God of God. Now what is the status of the spiritual children of God? First of all, there is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Look at what he wrote there in verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children. Why? Because your sins have been forgiven. Now the tense of this verb, verb, forgiven, is in the perfect tense. I I spoke about that tense a, a few weeks ago. In the English language, we have three tenses, right? Past tense, present tense, future tense. In the language of the Bible, in the New Testament, there's a a fourth tense called the perfect tense. And it speaks of action that takes place in the past that has a continuing effect today in the present with the ongoing effect in the future, right? So what John is saying, he says, I am writing to you, children, because your sins have been forgiven in the past there was a place a time in your life when if you repented of your sin and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ that all of your sin notice it says sins plural all of them have been forgiven and guess what they're still forgiven today and they will always be forgiven right I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins are forgiven. There will never be a time when your sins will be held up by God and you will be accountable. You'll have to pay for those sins again. Never. The word there for forgive is the word that literally means to uh, send away or to cancel or to pardon. He says that your sins have been sent away once and for all forever. But notice why. Do you notice why the word of God says that our sins have been forgiven? It says, I write to you dear children because your sins have been forgiven because you're trying really hard. Uh, I'm writing to you dear children because you're showing up to church somewhat regularly on Sunday mornings. I'm writing to their children because your sins are forgiven because you, you know, you've made a promise not to do it again. That's not what the Word of God says, right? The Word of God says, "I'm writing to their children because your sins are forgiven on account of His name, not your name. If it's our name, we're in a world of trouble." It's not the name of your parents? Well, my mom, my mom, she was such a good lady. She prayed for me all the time. My grandmother, man, she was a saint. It's not the name of your family member? It's not the name of your church, it's not the name of your pastor. Your sins are forgiven on account of his name. Over the years, Vicky and I, we've been blessed uh, different times to go to some sporting events. Wonderful seats. Sometimes we get into the luxury box suites. Those are always fun. So food's always included. Parking passes there. And the conversation goes something like this. When you get to the stadium, go to the will call window and give them my name. The only reason why Vicky and I could attend that event is not because we could ever afford a ticket like that. The only reason why we could event, attend an event like that is because somebody, wanted, somebody else paid for us to be able to go to that event in the same way. Neither you nor anyone else could ever pay for your sin. But Jesus can and has. And because of his name, if you have repented of your sin and believed on him, your sin has been forgiven. This is the spiritual reality of children. Children. Their sins have been forgiven on the basis of Christ's name. Look at verse 14. The beginning of verse 14, I write to you, dear children, because what you know the Father. Not only do do spiritual children have their sins forgiven, but the spiritual children have fellowship with the Father. They have fellowship with the Father. Not only are their sins forgiven, but they know the Father. They they may not know much more than that, but they know that, that God is their Father, I, I, think of, um, I think of a young man in our youth group back in Canada when I was growing up there, um, Jürgen was his name. Now you remember, this is back in the late 70s, early 80s, right? And so at that time, I don't know what they have now, maybe Thomas can help me out, but they had different... Um, Demographics of the high school, right? And one of the demographics was the stoners. Anybody, you guys have stoners where y'all lived, right? You guys remember the stoners? Yes, no. I got one person here. Anybody else? Okay. And so, who were the stoners? People and drugs. Yeah, people and drugs. And so, Jurgen was a stoner. I mean, he he was in the hall, the part of the school where all the stoners hung out. Again, I don't know. I mean, like. Where were the teachers? Where was the school? I mean, this I mean, our school administrators, the teachers, they must have been coming out of the 60s and 70s and thinking, well, I guess this is normal. I don't know. Anyway, so Jurgen was there. And I don't know who shared the gospel with Jurgen, but Jurgen got it. And his life was changed. Church door was open, Jurgen was there. The Bible wasn't a book. That you just brought out on Sunday mornings. I mean, he carried this thing to school. I mean, he was devouring the word of God. There was something happening in his life. There was this overwhelming love for God in Jürgen's life. Right? He knew that his sins were forgiven. And that God was his father. I think of what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. He's speaking to his disciples on prayer. remember what he said he said and when you pray don't pray like the hypocrites who like to pray on the street corner to be recognized and seen by anybody instead go to your closet and pray to your father pray to your father who sees in secret and will reward you and when you pray do not pray like the pagans who think they're heard for their multitude of words, their repetition, word, their repetitive words, their, their incantations, the right formulas. Instead, when you pray, go to your closet and your father who already knows what you need hears what you say in secret. It's a special intimacy, the special privilege that we have of of those who are in Christ know him as Father. Uh, Think, hold your place here in 1 John. Go with me over to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter four. I don't think I put this on the screen here. Uh, Galatians chapter four. I want us to see something else about this whole idea of God as Father. Galatians chapter four, uh, verses uh, six and seven. Yeah, verses six and seven. Paul writing here uh, to the church in Galatia, the southern region, the area south of Ephesus in that southern region of Galatia, um, to the churches there, and they were being confused. They were being, um, their, their threat at that time wasn't Gnosticism, but it was Judaism where the teaching was coming in. So, well, you can believe in Jesus Christ, but if you really want to be saved, and if you really want to have the Spirit of God working work your life, you need to keep all of the Old Testament laws. And he says, Paul writes, he says, because you are his sons. That's a declarative statement. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. That Abba, that Aramaic word that would be the equivalent there of daddy, that we have that, we know the Father, God as daddy, the Father as daddy. And what does he say? He says, so you are no longer a slave, But you are God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you and made you also an heir. That's the spiritual status of children. Not only do we know God, but everything that God has, we become heirs to him. The spiritual status of children, John is addressing that. The question this morning that we need to ask ourselves is, am I a child of God? We don't become children by natural birth. Well, my parents are Christians. Therefore, I'm a Christian. There's a... You know? Well, everybody's a child of God. There's a thinking out there. Everybody's a child of God. You know? I'm I'm a good person. I'm a child of God. We're not... We don't become children of God by... Being good or being American or being religious. There's only one way to become a child of God and that is through Jesus Christ. And what he has done for us at the cross in a few moments at the end of the service, we're gonna be observing communion and participating in the Lord's Supper and we're gonna be remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. His death. In our place. Believing on that, trusting in that, counting on that. That's what makes us the children of God. And so John begins by writing about the spiritual status, the status of spiritual children. And moving from children, spiritual children, John then addresses a second stage in the Christian life and he goes from children to adults. He he addresses the stability of spiritual adults. the, 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 The stability of spiritual adults. And he does this in the first part of verse 13 and the middle part of verse 14. One of the Marks, of, of maturity, one of the marks of adulthood is stability. And a description of this is given, a, a description of this spiritual reality is given for us in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 12, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says that God had gifted the church with certain people, uh, if you remember that in verse 11, apostles, evangelists, uh, prophets, pastors, teachers, uh, a missing one, um, <clears throat> but you have those, those gifts there that God has given to the church, who are then to equip God's people to do the work of the ministry so that, verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, And carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. This is the mark of maturity. It's a stability. The children are are carried away. They're they're enticed. They're easily enticed. Their their emotions are, are easily involved and they're they're caught up and they're swept away. Tossed to and fro. By every wind of doctrine. Well, that sounds good. I think I'll believe that. Well, I think I'll believe this. Maybe I'll believe that. It's a mark of immaturity. Maturity is marked by stability. Not being carried away. Not being deceived. Not by being caught up by these crafty, uh, deceitful schemes. Verse 13 middle of verse 13, again, or the beginning of verse 13, middle of verse 14, John repeats himself. What does he say? He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. This is the goal of the Christian life, that you and I have a deep, intimate relationship with God, that we know him that our lives are marked by this spiritual, stable maturity in our lives. You say, well, what are spiritual adults, how are spiritual adults marked by stability? Let me give you two two observations here from the text. The first one is this, is that we're marked by stability through the passing of time, through the passing of time. I write to you fathers. There's only one way to go from childhood to fatherhood, Right? And that is through the passing of time. It's, the, it's as we walk with the Lord, as we, as we journey with Him, we, we continue to we pro- pro- progress, we, we grow deeper in our knowledge and our experience of God. There's a deepening of our faith. We come to know Him through the passing of time. It's unfortunate that many times we have a beginning, but we stay in the maternity ward. It's like, it's as if, it is as if though the maternity ward has become the rest home. Like we just stay there. In fact, the Bible warns about that. First Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And he says, I could not write to you as spiritual, but instead I have to write to you as infants, babes in Christ, because. And he addresses the issue that was going on, and the issue was their carnality, their living as though they did not have the Spirit of God. The evidence of that was their lives, their relationships, their church in Corinth was marked by jealousy and divisiveness. The author of Hebrews writes something similar. This is I write to you, not as mature, but as infants. This is the goal of the Christian life, is that you and I don't stay infants in the Christian life, but we mature. How does that happen? Not only through the passing of time, but through the progress of truth. Through the progress of truth. We come to know Him, God as fathers, in the early days of our faith, but as this knowledge grows and increases, we come to know Him, what the Bible says, who is from the beginning. There is this deepening of our faith. Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 and 2 says that God is from everlasting to everlasting, that He does not change. There is this, as the, the longer we walk with Him, the more we come to know Him. Hold your place. I, I referenced that, that verse there in, in Hebrews chapter five, but, but turn with me back in your Bibles a few pages uh, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter five. I don't know if I have this verse on the screen or not. I do, okay, great. Hebrews chapter five. Let me hear the Bible turn. Uh, Hebrews chapter five. <clears throat> Paul, or not Paul, the author of Hebrews writes in verse 12. He says, in fact, though, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You, in fact, by this time, you ought to be teachers, You still need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The writer here says, you ought to be teachers, but you're not. Instead, you're still infants. Did you notice verse 14? Solid food is for the mature who what? Who distinguish good from evil. Who by constant use distinguish, have trained themselves to distinguish from good to evil. How do we mature in the faith? It's just not by hearing. It, begin, it happens by doing. By you and I beginning to train ourselves where, where, we, we, where we, there comes a time where we say, okay, I have heard that. It's time that I put that into practice. That's how we move from childhood to adulthood. We're putting the word of God into practice in our lives. Spiritual status of the children They know that their sins are forgiven and they know the Father. The stability of spiritual adults is that that in their maturity, they know Him who is from the beginning. And notice the third stage of life, and that is the strength of spiritual youth, the strength of spiritual youth. John addresses this at the end of verse 13 and at the end of verse 14. This time he writes to young men. And he says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You say, what is the strength of spiritual youth? He says, you have overcome. You have overcome because the war has been won. Again, I want you to notice here the tense of this verb, you have overcome. It's that perfect tense, right? You have overcome something that took place in the past, something that's true right now. And something that will always be true in the future. You have overcome. Well, what does that mean? Because if I'm going to be honest with you this morning, I don't feel like an overcomer. Anybody feel my pain? Feel sometimes defeated. Sometimes I feel in the ba- I'm in the battle of my life. I, sometimes I feel I'm weak. Sometimes I feel like I'm a mess because of my constant struggle against sin. In what way am I, is anyone, an overcomer? Hold your place here in 1 John chapter 2. Go over to 1 John chapter 5. I want us to to see a verse here. We're going to, obviously, in months down the road, we'll get to this verse eventually. But 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, I want you to see something here. He says, we know that anyone born of God, 5.18, does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God, that is Jesus Christ, keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. You understand what the scripture is saying? It says that if you have been born of God, the Lord Jesus Christ keeps you safe. He keeps you safe. There's a sense here in in this, the sense is this. There's a real sense in which you and I are overcomers today. Because of Jesus Christ and what he has done. The book of Revelation speaks about this. There's a a scene in Revelation chapter 12 in front of the throne of God and the Bible says this. I think, yeah, we have the verse there. It says, they triumphed over him. Say, who's the him? Verse 10. They triumphed over the accuser of the brethren. That is Satan. How? How did they overcome him? The triumph over him. By the blood of the Lamb. And the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now think about that. Our overcoming, our conquering, our victory does not rest on us, but in him. I feel like I'm working up a sweat here for nothing. (laughs) Thank you. We overcome... Not because of us, but because of him. It's still pretty weak. You don't have to help me out here. It's because of him, because of Jesus Christ, that we have overcome. The war has been won, and the outcome has been decided. Overcome. Back here, a present reality today, always be true in the future. Well, you say, preacher, you've got to help me because I don't feel like I'm an overcomer. Is there any help for the battle today? Just listen to some of the scriptures. What is the help for the battle today? Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, Jesus teaching us how to pray. And do not not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us. From the evil one. How do we overcome? We overcome by prayer. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 12 and 13. The apostle Paul writing and he says, put on the spiritual armor of God so that in the day of evil you might be able to stand. How, how do we stand? We have to put on our armor every single day. And he gives to us those, those pieces of armor that we need to put on. The, the truth, the righteousness, the, the word of God, the, the gospel of peace, um, this, the helmet of salvation, a missing one, and we have to put those pieces of armor on every single day. Romans chapter 13 verse 14 tells us to be vigilant and not to make, to make no provisions for the flesh. We have to fight that battle every single day. But we can't, we can't give up on that. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 22 Benjamin, I need you to catch up with me. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 tells us that we are to flee youthful lusts. We're to flee the youthful lusts. That, that we're not to, to stick around and think, well, I can handle this one. I can Sometimes it's turning off the television. Sometimes it's closing down the computer. Sometimes it's getting up and walking out of the room. Whatever you have to do, flee youthful lusts. That, that's what we have to do to, to engage and to be overcome in the battle. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Fight the good fight of faith. That's day in and day out. You and I have to get up and get out of bed and say, it's a fight today. And we have to be ready for it. We have to be prepared for it. But the key, the key to the battle is found at the end of verse 14. Let's look at the end of verse 14 again, right? I write to you, young men. Why? Because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. What is the key to the battle? The key to the battle is that you are strong because the word of God remains in you. You are strong, present tense, right now. I don't feel strong. You may not be strong, but you can be strong. And this is how you get strong. You get strong by the word of God remaining in you. That's, that's the, the secret of strength. There's no secret sauce here. You don't have to have some Gnostic experience. They said, well, I'm going to go there and have this experience. and This new enlightenment is going to give me the victory that I need in the Christian life. No, you don't need to chase after a power encounter to be able to have victory in your life. The Word of God needs to live inside of you. That's what we need. This is the key to the Christian life. I heard years ago, seven days without Scripture makes one week. W-E-A-K. Seven days without Scripture makes one week. You say, "This this is the teaching of the Word of God. Psalm chapter 119, verses 9 and 11, right? How can a young man stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is the key. Two, not only overcoming, but this is the key to growing in the Christian life. Seven days without the word of God makes one weak. I think of the example of Ezra in the Old Testament. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. Ezra was part of that remnant group that had come out of Babylon and had gone back to the promised land after the days of Daniel. Nehemiah was tasked with the, with the responsibility of rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem, and Ezra was the scribe that was there to be the spiritual leader of the people to, to make sure that as they go back and they rebuild their life in the promised land, that, that they don't just rebuild their walls and rebuild their homes, but they, they, they stay true to the Lord. That was Ezra. And the Bible says in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 that Ezra devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law and to the teaching of it. Now think about it. He devoted himself, devoted himself to the study of the law, the word of God. (laughs) Ezra wasn't, well, I wonder what the verse of the day is today. How does it open up the Bible? Oh, that's it. That's the verse of the day. Ezra was doing what we try to do here at church every Sunday, right? Verse by verse, we're just going to work through the Scriptures, listening to the Word of God. If you and I are going to be, if the Word of God is going to live in us, we have to be diligent and disciplined into to put ourselves into the Word of God and sit under the Word of God, let the Word of God rest on top of us. Wednesday night, we have our small group Bible study here in the worship center. What are we doing? We, We sit under the Word of God. We let the Word of God rest on us. And it begins to shape our lives. Right? And he devoted himself to the observance It wasn't enough for Ezra to, well, I I know what the Bible says. I can quote that verse. He devoted himself to the observance, to putting it into practice. James says, do not be hearers of God's word only, but be doers of the word of God. The word of God needs to live inside of us. And he devoted himself to the teaching of the law of God, <clears throat> helping others to know <laughs> and apply the scriptures to their lives. You remember what, what the writer of Hebrews says? is says, you, you ought to be teachers by now. Sometimes we think, Well, <clears throat> teachers, that's, those are the people that we pay, pay at church. That's a pay job, not a pay job. Well, it is a paid job. So <laughs> it's not only a paid job. How's that? We're to progress. The Word of God is to live in us in such a way that we grow up and we become mature so that we're able to help others understand and apply the Word of God to their life and the battles that they face and the circumstances and situations that they find themselves in. Those who are strong use the Word of God. Whenever we find ourselves struggling in the areas of obedience, It is because we have neglected the very basic disciplines of the Christian life. We have put distance between ourselves and the Word of God. We have been neglecting the prayer closet. We have been absent from worship. We have begun to make room for the flesh. We're not fleeing the desires of the flesh. As we'll see next week, we have allowed the world to to enter into our lives through our eyes to settle into our hearts to rest upon our minds and the way to progress from childhood to adulthood is through the use of the word of god and so let me ask you this morning where are you today in the spiritual life in your spiritual life have you started on the journey, are you spiritually alive? Have you, do you understand that your sin cannot be forgiven any other way other than through Jesus Christ, that it is through His death on the cross, through His resurrection, by believing in Him, by trusting in Him, that your sins can be forgiven and you can know the Father? If you are a believer, rest in Christ. Know that your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. Don't let this, what other people say they're experiencing, don't let that unsettle you. You know that your sins have been forgiven because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You have been forgiven on account of His name. You know Him as Father. Return to the Word of God. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you're weary today. You're weary in the battle. Listen, you overcome because of and through Jesus Christ. Your victory rests in Him. The battle is real, yes. And so is Jesus Christ. The enemy is relentless. The word of God is sufficient. Don't neglect him. Don't neglect his word. Pursue him. If you're a mature believer, guard against pride, guard against complacency, guard against thinking, well, listen, I've been walking with God for a while, I, I don't have to, I can just coast. No, you can't. We need you. We need you to speak truth into our lives. We need you to walk alongside us. Where are you in your spiritual life today? As I close the message today, we're gonna to prepare for our time at the Lord's table. But I wanna end this morning with the words that Peter ended his second letter to. Uh, in Second Peter chapter three, verse 18, he said this, but grow in the grace of and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen.